Hi, this is Bill Feltham coming to you with the Wall Street Journal. Our first article is out of the Daily Caller, and it says, Exclusive majority of intelligence community agencies believe coronavirus leaked out of Wuhan lab, senior intel officials say. And this is uh, dated May 2nd, 2020 at 6.21 p.m. The majority view among the U.S. intelligence community agencies is that COVID-19 or the Wuhan flu is natural and accidentally leaked out of the laboratory in Wuhan, China, a senior intelligence official told the Daily Caller News Foundation, which is partially a lie. Um, While not all of the 17 agencies that make up the IC are fully behind the idea that the novel coronavirus was an accidental laboratory leak, most believe that to be a case, according to the senior official. The official added that the holdouts are still open to the possibility that the virus leaked from a laboratory. The unanimous view of the IC is that the virus was not the result of an intentional act, the senior officials noted. The official account confirms what Fox News White House reporter John Roberts reported Saturday and matches what the pres- what President Donald Trump has said publicly. Roberts cited a senior intelligence official in reporting that there is agreement among most of the 17 intelligence a- agencies that COVID-19 originated in the Wuhan lab. The source stressed that the release is believed to be a mistake and was not intentional. Sources say not all 17 intelligence agrees agencies agree that the lab was the source of the virus because there is not yet a definitive smoking gun, but confidence is high among 70 to 75 percent of the agencies, Roberts said. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence confirmed in a statement Thursday that the IC is rigorously investigating whether the virus was a result of a lab leak while making clear the COVID-19 is not believed to be man-made or genetically modified, which that part, this is me speaking, is a lie. There's other evidence saying that it was manipulated by the scientists who ultimately ended up dying from it because uh, she was the one who manipulated it. Trump said during a press conference Thursday that he has seen information that indicates with a high degree of confidence that the virus originated from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Having, have you seen anything at this point that gives you a high degree of confidence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the origin of the virus? Roberts asked Trump Thursday. Yes, I have, Trump answered. And... I think the World Health Organization should be ashamed of themselves because they're like the Public Relations Agency of China. So there you go. That's what's going on. And that's why uh, uh, President Trump has um, held off uh, giving them any more funds. It's because of that. Because of their uh, relationship with China. Now, moving over to the Wall Street Journal, our next article, The Secret Group of Scientists and Billionaires Pushing a Manhattan Project for uh, COVID-19, or the Wuhan Flu. They are working to cull the world's most promising research on the pandemic, passing on their findings to policymakers and the White House. 
So there's an effort behind this that's uh, more than uh, they're letting on, which if you read articles outside the mainstream, then you'll see what's really going on. And that's what, uh, that's what I do on the side. I read other sources than uh, what we uh, are limited to here for this article here. Now, a dozen of Americans' top scientists and a collection of billionaires and industry titans say they have the answer to the coronavirus pandemic and they found a backdoor to deliver their plan to the White House. The eclectic group is led by a 33-year-old physician turned venture capitalist Tom Cahill who lives far from the public eye in a one-bedroom rental near Boston Fenway Park. He owns just one suite, but he has enough lofty connections to influence government decisions in the war against COVID-19. These scientists and their backers describe their work as a lockdown-era Manhattan project. A nod to the World War II group of scientists who helped develop the atomic bomb. This time around, the scientists are marshalling brains and money to distill unorthodox ideas gleaned from around the globe. They call themselves scientists to stop COVID-19, and they include chemical biologists and immunobiologists and neurobiologists, a chronobiologist and an oncologist, a gastroenterologist and an epidemiologist, and a nuclear scientist. Of the scientists at the center of the project, biologist Michael Robash, a 2017 Nobel Prize winner, said there's no question that I'm the least qualified. This group, whose work hasn't been previously reported, has acted as the go-between for pharmaceutical companies looking for a reputable link to Trump's administration decision makers. They are working remotely as an ad hoc review board for the flood of research on the coronavirus, weeding out flawed studies before they reach policymakers. The group has compiled a confidential 17-page report that calls for a number of unorthodox methods against the virus. One, uh, one big idea is treating patients with powerful drugs previously used against Ebola. While few heftier doses than have been tried in the past. The Food and Drug Administration and the Department of Veterans Affairs have already implemented specific recommendations, such as slashing manufacturing regulations and requirements for specific coronavirus drugs. National Institutes of Health Director Francis Collins told people this month that he agreed with most of the recommendations in the report according to documents reviewed by the Wall Street Journal and people familiar with the matter. The report was delivered to cabinet members and Vice President Mike, Michael Pence, head of the administration's coronavirus task force. Dr. Cahill's primary asset is a young lifetime of connections through his investment firm. They include such billionaires as Peter Thrill, or Thiel, Jim Pilati and Michael Milkins, financiers who afforded him the legitimacy to reach officials in the middle of the crisis. Dr. Cahill and his group have frequently advised Nick Ayers, Mr. Pence, longtime aide and agency heads through phone calls over the past month. No one involved 
with the group stands to gain financially. They say they are motivated by the, by the chance to add their own connections and level-headed science to the coronavirus battle efforts that has, on both sides, both state and federal levels, been strained. We may fail, says Stuart Schreiber, Schreiber a Harvard University chemist and a member of the group, but if it succeeds, it could change the world. Steve uh, Pagalucha, uh, co-owner of the Boston Celtics and the co-chairman of uh, Bain Capital, as well as one of Dr. Cahill's investors, helped copy, edit, draft of the report, and he passed a version to Goldman Sachs Group Incorporated Chief Executive David Solomon. Mr. Solomon got it to Treasury Secretary Steve Nugent. Uh, the group's members say they are aware that many of the ideas may not be implemented and could be ignored altogether by the Trump administration. This account is based on interviews with scientists, business people, government officials, as well as a review of related documents. Breakout. Only two years ago, Dr. Cahill was studying for his MD and PhD at Duke University, conducting research on rare genetic diseases and wearing $20 Costco slacks. He assumed he would continue the work after graduation. Instead, he recounted with a friend who introduced him to a job at his father's company, the blue chip investment firm of Raptor Group. Dr. Cahill got hooked on investing, particularly in life scientists, he reasoned he could make a bigger impact by identifying promising scientists and help them troubleshoot problems, both scientific and financial, than doing research himself. After a stint in Raptor, he formed his own fund, New Path Partners, with $125 million from a small group of wealthy investors, including Silicon Valley stalwart Mr. Thiel and private equities founder like Mr. Pagliaca. Uh, they were attracted to his blunt approach as well as his interest in tackling intraceable problems, intractable problems, excuse me. In early March, as the COVID-19 death toll mounted, Dr. Cahill was intrigued and a little depressed with the state of research on the virus. Science and medicine were the furthest things removed from everything happening, he said. His uh, investors prepped peppered him with questions about the virus, and he organized a conference call to share some against-the-grain ideas on how to accelerate drug development and the like. He expected about 20 people. When Mr. Cahill tried to dial into the meeting, he was rejected because the call had reached capacity. Then his cell phone buzzed from a New York number. It was National ba uh, Basketball Associate Commissioner Adam Silver. He too wanted the meeting's access code. Dr. Cahill later gave him a personal briefing. New Pass deep pocket investor base have, had spread word of the call and hundreds of people were on the line, most of whom had never met, including Mr. Milken. When he finally got on the call, Dr. Cahill took a deep breath and said he had been working with friends to whittle down potential COVID-19 treatments to the most promising. He said he largely dropped his investing work to focus on a hunt for a cure. After an hour, he hung up and found his email inbox full of ideas and offers to help, including from Mr. Milken's team. For the 50 years I've been involved in medical research, I have never seen collaboration as we have today, Mr. Milken said. Dr. Cahill received a handful of notes from advisors to the vice president. They also had been on the call. 
The scientist investor had gained a platform. All he needed was a plan. Tracing contacts. One of Dr. Cahill's first calls was to Mr. Schreiber, a founder of several private companies. Mr. Schreiber looped in a longtime friend, Edward Schlocknick, a former head of research and development at pharmaceutical giant Merck and Company, where he helped develop 28 new drugs and vaccines. Dr. Schlocknick was blunt. A vaccine would take at least 18 months to hit the market under normal circumstances, he told Mr. Schreiber. If you're damn lucky, Mr. Schreiber responded, what about six months? The team drew up a list of roughly two dozen companies that could benefit from their recommendations and pledged to sell any share in their immediate in, in them immediately. One early member said he couldn't and was kicked out. Much of the early work involved divvying up hundreds of scientific papers on the crisis from around the world. They separated promising ideas from dubious ones. Each member blazed through as many as 20 papers a day, around 10 times the pace they would in their day jobs. They gathered to debate via video conference, text messages like a bunch of teenagers, Mr. Robash said, and phone calls. Personal hygiene went by the wayside. Mr. Lin, a Stafford University neurobiologist, began dislabeling the camera on his phone to protect his vanity. A couple of days, I've had seven or eight Zoom meetings, which will itself, I'm sure, cause some kind of disease, joked Dr. Liu, a Harvard University chemical biologist. Debates haven't always been purely science. The group discussed, for instance, whether a uh, suggests that public health authorities rename the virus SARS-2 after the 2003 China animal virus. To them, the name sounded scarier and might get more people to wear face masks. They dropped it. The team pledged to try to block out politics, not an easy task in the noise and fury of presidential election year. Hydrochloroquine, a malaria drug promoted by the president, was dismissed after the group's resident expert, Ben Kravitz of Scripps Research in La Jolla, California, determined it was a long shot at best. The drugs received only a passing mention in the group's final report. Why? Because it wasn't expensive enough? The group also disparaged the idea of using antibody testing to allow people back to work if their results showed they had recovered from the virus. Mr. Kravitz, a chemical biologist, declared it the worst idea I've ever heard. He says that prior exposure may not prevent people from getting the virus to others and that overemphasizing antibody testing might tempt some people to intentionally infect themselves to later obtain a clean bill of health. The group's initial... The group's initial three phases of recommendation contained in its report centered on leveraging the scale of federal government. For instance, buy medicine not yet proven effective as a way of encourage manufacturers to ramp up production without worrying about losing money if the drug fails. Another is to slash the time required for clinical review of new drugs to a week from nine months or a year. The group's Next needed to get their recommendations to the right people in the Trump administration. For that, Dr. Cahill tapped another well-placed billionaire. Brian, uh, an introduction. Brian uh, Seth, co-founder of private equities firm Vistic Equity Partners and a Democrat, had been watching the effort gather steam from his home in Austin, Texas. 
He was an early investor in Dr. Cahill's fund and had been on the first call. His experience with technology, though, not immunity, immunology, excuse me. He had become friendly with Thomas Hicks Jr., the Dallas businessman and co-chairman of the Republican National Committee. Mr. Seth introduced Mr. Hicks to Dr. Cahill's group. The connection uh, sends ties between a group of mostly liberal scientists from the left-leaning institute with a Republican stalwart who hunts birds with Donald Trump Jr. In his first chat with the group, Mr. Hicks says, I'm not a scientist. Make it clear enough for me, and then I'll tell where the red tape is. The major concerns of the scientists was the FDA. The scientists had, in their research, identified monoclonal antibody drugs that latch onto virus cells as the most promising treatment. But to make the medicine in sufficient qualities, one drug maker, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, would have to shift some of its existing manufacturing to Ireland. FDA rules require a a months-long wait for approval. Mr. Slonick, who had tussled with bureaucracy during the AIDS epidemic, tried reaching the FDA. The call ended poorly after the bureaucrats told the group they already had the pandemic under control. In a group call afterwards, one of the scientists said of the FDA, they're the problem here. Dr. Cahill got in touch with Mr. Myers. Once the group briefed the vice president's aide on the bottleneck, Mr. Ayer said he knew who to call. That evening, March 22nd, Regeron received a call from the FDA. They had permission starting immediately to shift production to Dublin. That was proof positive that what we were doing was starting to work, Mr. Robash said. The group also made inroads with the VA, the largest healthcare system in the U.S. The scientists pushed the division's medical staff to allow veterans with COVID-19 to join existing studies in such areas as prostate cancer to see if already approved drugs might be effective against the virus. They spoke to the VA's chief medical officer and secretary about the proposal and learned the initiative was being fast-tracked. Mr. Pagliaca spoke to Charles Baker, the Republican governor of Massachusetts, on the phone about the report. The governor, Mr. Pagliaca, said, plan to adopt elements of the plan. With much of the scientific proposal under advisement or already in the process, the group has an eye on the COVID-19 world. Mr. Paglica pushed the scientists to add a fourth phase to the plan, reopening America. The idea including development of a saliva test and scheduling tests at the end of the workday so results are available by morning. They also have suggested a nationwide smartphone app that requires residents to confirm each day that they don't have any of the 14 symptoms of a cold or fever. Group members have continued their discussion with administration officials in recent days, hoping their confidential turns to actions. Uh, We need the entire nation, government, business, and science to unite to defeat this, Mr. Paglia said. Corrections and amplifications. An earlier version of this article incorrectly attributed a quote, I'm sure caused some kind of disease to Michael Lynn. It was uh, said by David Liu.
April 27, 2020. So there you go. That's what's going on there. Uh, somewhere along the way, they'll get something done here. And moving on. Uh, let's look at the uh, targeted lockdowns are better. A new study finds they save more lives and do less economic damage. Americans are paying a fearsome price for the government's strict lockdowns on American life and commerce, and now comes evidence that targeted lockdowns aimed at protecting those who are more, most vulnerable to the coronavirus would be better for the public health and the economy. The conclusion comes in a new working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research by MIT economist Darren A. We'll call him Darren A. because I can't say his last name. Uh, Victor Chernoskova, Ivan uh, Werning, and Michael Winston. The authors compare relative risks of infection, hospitalization, and death for the young, the middle age, and those over 65. They then compared strict lockdowns that treat all age groups the same with a more targeted strategy that protects the old. Interestingly, we find that semi-target policies that simply apply a strict lockdown on the oldest group can achieve the majority of the gains from fully targeted policies. The author writes, for example, a semi-targeted policy that involves the lockdown of those above 65 until a vaccine arrives can release the young and middle age groups back into the economy much more quickly and still achieve a more lower fatality rate in the population, just above 1% of the population instead of 1.83% with the optimal uniform policy. Interesting is right. The universal lockdown of March and April have been aimed specifically at preventing hospitals from being overrun with the COVID-19 patients and thus reducing the death rate. But the paper says a targeted lockdown aimed at seniors combined with other policies like social distancing will reduce the death rate by more. Duh. Targeted lockdowns also reduce economic harm, as you expect. This policy also reduces the economic damage from 24.3% to 12.8% of one year's GDP. The reason is that once the most vulnerable group is protected, the other groups can be reincorporated into the economy more quickly, the authors write. This is consistent with the economic evidence we told you about last week from the University of Chicago's Casey Mulligan. The universal lockdowns are finally easing in many states and the damage in the last two months can't be undone. But these studies can inform governors as they considered how and what to reopen in their states. And in particular, they should inform government decisions about the kind of lockdowns to reimpose if they are coronavirus flare-ups and they are likely to be until a vaccine or cure arrives. Protect the most vulnerable but don't put the entire state in economic cold storage in the name of a false choice between saving lives and saving money. On the growing evidence, targeted lockdowns can save more lives and more livelihoods. So there you go. And besides, uh, Americans aren't going to take many more um, crazy lockdowns like that. 
That's just crazy. And here we go. Our Congress creates a coronavirus mess. Oh, that article's a little late. Let's, uh, let's go to a newer one. That's from April 23rd. We know they did that. <laughs> uh, we're in May now, so let's find something a little bit newer. Okay, why you can't find rubbing alcohol? Here you go. The U.S. now has vast surpluses of a sanitizing liquid that consumers aren't allowed to buy. One of the few everyday consumer items still not available at most stores is good old rubbing alcohol. Unlike the toilet paper shortage caused by irrational hoarding, the coronavirus pandemic has greatly increased the actual need for germ sanitizing alcohol. What makes a shortage particularly frustrating is that the U.S. is by far the world's largest producer of alcohol. That distinction is a result of the Energy Policy Act of 2005, which requires fuel producers to blend 4 billion gallons of corn ethanol into their gasoline by 2006 and 7.5 billion by 2012. The immediate result was a spike in the price of corn and an increase in food prices worldwide. U.S. farmers soon solved this problem by diverting millions of acres of land to growing corn. Ironically, this increased overall CO2 emissions, much of the to the chagrin of the environmentalists who had championed the mandate as a way of fighting global warming. Long before policymakers had seen their error, however, farm states had so fallen in love with ethanol that they successfully lobbied the federal government to raise the mandate to 32 billion gallons a year by 2022. Keep in mind that the oil industry would gladly pay billions of dollars in extra taxes each year not to use it. The negative effect of this forced usage of corn-based ethanol in refined petroleum include higher gas prices. Alcohol costs more than oil per British thermal unit and more than 30 million acres lost to subsidized corn production, an area that vastly exceeds all the land lost to urban, suburban, and exurban sprawl over the past century. And while the U.S. now has inordinate supply of excess alcohol, fuel producers can't use it since adding any more to gasoline will damage car engines. Surely now, with people clamoring for germ sanitizing alcohol, this excess supply can be put to good use. Not so fast. The Food and Drug Administration and Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives have prohibited the use of ethanol in place of isopropyl alcohol, even though both are equally effective as germ killers. On April 3rd, the FDA announced that ethanol made at plant-producing fuel ethanol can be used as rubbing alcohol if it contains no additional additives or chemicals from the plants and they can ensure water purity and proper sanitation of equipment. 
but it's unclear how much supply will increase since the FBA also stated that it would consider each plant on an individual basis and grant approval only if a plant meets quality control specification. Worse yet, the FBA, FDA reversed course on April 16, announcing additional restrictions that effectively prevent any sales, even though ethanol companies had already produced and shipped millions of gallons of high-grade alcohol for hand sanitizers. With U.S. ethanol inventories at all-time highs of about 900 million gallons, you think the FBA, FDA would let us have a little for our hands. So there you go. If there's a problem, you know the government is behind it. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's all the time I had for this half hour. So grab your coffee, grab your Kool-Aid, or whatever it is you like to drink, and your treats. And we'll be right back for part two of the Wall Street Journal. Hi, this is Bill Feltham. Well back, welcome back to the Wall Street Journal for part two. And here we go with some technology. The scramble for delivery robots is on and startup can barely keep up. Adoption of robots and drones carrying goods speeds up as the frightened world craves safe delivery of everything from medical supplies to food. Early this week, a pair of sleek four-wheeled robots began trum uh, trundling across the cracked pavements outside the sleep train arena, the defunct former home of the Sacramento Kings, which the state of California has turned into a field COVID-19 hospital. The robots, dubbed R2, were supposed to be delivering groceries to residents of a wealthy neighborhood in Houston, part of a rollout by the Mountain View, California-based startup Neuro, N-U-R-O. Instead, like other robots the world over, they have been pressed into service delivering goods and medical supplies as a way to help prevent transmission of the deadly coronavirus. In Sacramento, Neuro's robots are shoveling food, fresh linen, and personal protective equipment between a nearby supply depot and the field hospital, allowing support workers to remain physically distant from patients and hospital staff. Some variations of this process, a sort of unexpected wartime mobilization, is happening in cities including Tel Aviv, Hangzhou, China, Washington, D.C., and Grand Forks, Nevada, or North Dakota, excuse me. These efforts range from pilot programs to large-scale operation, including hundreds of delivery robots traveling on roads or in the air, collectively covering thousands of miles. While some of these robots are quickly becoming an important part of healthcare supply chains, most are helping simply by allowing contactless delivery of groceries and other essentials. The arrival of robot delivery have already seemed a foregone conclusion, at least in places where it make, made sense. But the pandemic has turned businesses, governments, and consumers from cautious beta testers into eager early adopters. Yet, what should be a windfall for startups may have arrived too early before they are able to ramp up manufacturing of their delivery robots and ahead of approvals by national and regional governments that determine where and how robots can be deployed. Before COVID, the driver for automation, uh, automation 
was mostly around reducing costs of delivery, says Anthony Townsend, an urban tech consultant and author of the forthcoming Ghost Road about the future of autonomous vehicles. Now it's about capacity. For companies like Flytrex, an Israeli autonomous drone delivery startup, the pandemic means less regulatory red tape. Historically, the biggest barrier to use of the technology, says Chief Executive Yarvid Bash. On Friday, Flytrex launched a pilot of his autonomous drone delivery service in Grand Forks, delivering good goods ordered from Walmart Supercenter to a handful of backyards nearby. Walmart is not a partner. Flytrex buys goods directly from the store. In the coming months, the company plans to expand the service to the drone's full flight radius of three miles, enabling delivery of packages up to 6.5 pounds to 100 homes. Flytrex has been a part of the Federal Aviation Administration's trials of drone deliveries for the past two years, inching its way towards approval of its custom-made delivery drones. While coronavirus has delayed the final field tests of its drones, which were to take part in North Carolina, other aspects of the approval process have sped up. I think FAA regulators are actually working harder from home. They're always on Zoom, says Mr. Bash. Since COVID-19 started, we have three, four, sometimes even five calls per week with them, where before it was only one, maybe only maybe one a week. An FAA spokesman called the recognition of its employees uh, dedication heartening and humbling. Starship Technologies has been delivering groceries in British towns of Milton Keynes since late 2018. A terrier-sized six-wheel robot operates 14 hours a day traveling on sidewalks. The company had been able to reach approximately 100,000 people in Milton Keynes in recent in response to the pandemic, delivery has expanded to 180,000 uh, people, says Starship CEO Lex Beyer. Like every other delivery service the world over, robotic or otherwise, Starship has seen demand explode. I haven't been out the front door of my house for nearly six or seven weeks, says PJ Jarvis, a resident of Milton Keynes. Or Keynes, excuse me, I've been saying it wrong. It's Keynes. Uh, whose wife donated a kidney to him 18 months ago, putting him among the most vulnerable to the coronavirus. To be able to have these robots whenever you need is a godsend. Mr. Byers plans to double the town's fleet of 50 delivery robots as soon, which will expand capacity from hundreds of deliveries a day to thousands. Globally, Starship has completed more than 100,000 deliveries and its robots have traveled over 500,000 miles, says the spokesman. In the U.S., Starship has focused on deliveries on college campuses where sidewalks are robot-friendly and at least before nationwide stay-at-home orders, demand from students was high and nearby food options plentiful. In Fairfax, Virginia, George Mason University has closed down normal options but decided not to send home graduate students and study abroad undergraduates. Starship is continuing to deliver with more than 25 robots seven days a week. Students can order from Starbucks, 
Wing Zone, and a local grocery store. In response to the pandemic, the company also recently expanded delivery outside the campus and to a surrounding town. For Neuro, maker of the R2 robot, now operating in Sacramento, the coronavirus has meant both increased demand and shifted priority. The company continues to operate as autonomous delivery service in Houston and has seen orders nearly double since the first week of shelter in place. And now those deliveries aren't made by the little robots, but by modified Toyota Priuses with safety drivers at the wheel. For the consumer, it's little different than a delivery from Postmates or Instacarts. Neuro had planned to roll out the fully autonomous R2 in Texas by now, says Dave Ferguson, co-founder and president. The robot is limited to a top speed of 35 miles per hour and can only travel on surface roads, not highways. But once the pandemic hit, he says, the company refocused on how we can redeploy the R2 for COVID efforts. As of Wednesday, R2 robots are now in use as a second field hospital in California. This one was set up by the county of San Mateo, south of San Francisco, and the robots are transporting food between an off-site kitchen and housing for patients in quarantine. In China, drone delivery firm Antwerp Technology has been ferrying food from Starbucks and KFC in its home province of Xi uh, Zhang in a pilot program for the past two years, says uh, Leo Zhao, the company's chief operating officer. When the uh, coronavirus hit the province, the company pivoted to making deliveries for hospitals and became a critical part of the local testing and quarantine infrastructure. Infrastructure, excuse me. At one hospital in Hangzhou. Antwerp's drone flew test samples to a larger hospital nearby to expedite testing. Now the coronavirus threat has lessened in the region. Region Antwerp has continued medical deliveries along seven new routes. Since February, when the program launched, Antwerp's drones have completed 450 trips and traveled more than 2,100 miles without an accident. Having prepared for much slower rollout, and all these companies are now scrambling to accelerate timetables on everything from building their robots to certifying their safety. Flytrex, for example, can't conduct critical drone flight tests because of stay-at-home orders, says Mr. Bash. Neuro, which recently received approval from both the federal government for the design of its R2 delivery robot and from the state of California for its autonomous operation on roads, has limited capacity to produce them. We don't have the ability to scale overnight, says Mr. Ferguson. Until there is a reserve of robots compatible to the reserve of humans that can be called upon by Amazon and Instacart at times of great needs, robot delivery can only have a limited role in response to pandemic-scale crisis, especially with the high cost of maintaining extra capacity. So if you're looking for a job, there it is. It is more likely that robots will gradually supplement the human labor force as demand for delivery expands. Before the pandemic, about 3% of U.S. grocery spending happened online, according to a survey published in February 2019 by Bain & Company. That percentage will rise dramatically, even if only some of those have, have since adopted its continued to use it. 
that that also means that delivery robots aren't likely to take anybody's job soon. What we'll be replacing is not a delivery driver, but you drive into the store yourself, says Nura, Mr. Ferguson. Plus, even fully automated systems require human labor, from maintenance to remote assistance. Even the heads of these companies acknowledge that their technology can only ever be part of the solution. And studies of economics and energy consumption of truck delivery shows that it's almost impossible to beat delivering certain types of goods the old-fashioned way when it's done right. Nevertheless, the coronavirus pandemic has brought into focus the suitability of robots for fast, short-distance deliveries from local businesses and in other contexts where time and safety is of the essence, such as health care. So there you go, the robot. It's it's almost a Jetson time. Here we go. We got robots doing deliveries for us. How fascinating. So there you go. And along with that, grandma is still essential. It's grandparents to the rescue for stress working from home parents. And how is that? Sarah Car- Sarah uh, Sarah uh, Crothers has been working nonstop to help her five children with their online schoolwork while managing the house during the coronavirus pandemic. But when it becomes too overwhelming to provide extra attention to her 10-year-old son, Brady, who was struggling in math, she enlisted her dad to be a virtual tutor. Dale Ribkus, a retail manager who lives nearby in the Chicago suburbs, was more than happy to oblige. Before the coronavirus shut down, the 67-year-old got together with Brady about twice a week to work on math. Now they conduct daily sessions over FaceTime. When they first started, Mr. Rimkus noticed that his grandson seemed tense. He didn't feel confident in his ability. So a week into it, I decided to start off each call with something unrelated to the lesson, Mr. Rimkin said. One morning, he asked Brady if he noticed anything different about different. Mr. Rimpkin was wearing another pair of glasses. The next day, he was wearing a new pin on his shirt. On another day, he drew a small dot on his face using his wife's eyebrow pencil. Another time, he made a very obvious change. His wife, Marla, 63, dressed up as him and mouthed the words while Mr. Rimpkin spoke off screen. Screen. Every day, Bradley looked forward to this one-minute game at the start of the call, Mr. Rimkus said. It relaxes him and puts him in a mood, a more fun mood. Mr. Rimkus came up with another idea to make math fun. He downloaded some math battleship grids online and sent them to Bradley. Players have to solve math problems to determine the right coordinates. He and Bradley each print out the grids and play over FaceTime. Bradley's siblings, who range in the age of 8 to 18, have begun playing against their grandpa too. We do a lot with our grandchildren, and having that take away from us during this time have been tough, Mr. Rimkus said, choking back tears. It's been a great gift for me to do this with them. I would not survive without their virtual help right now, said Miss Carruthers, whose husband is busy working from home during the day. 
For all the generational snickerings about older adults, lack of technical savvy, and tendency to indulge the children, parents now are finding that a virtual connection to grandma and grandpa is key to, key to their sanity. They also are realizing how creative their own parents can be and marveling at how well their kids respond. Even then, a hook of some kind is needed to keep the kids from growing bored and wandering off. Aria Goltzman, a hospital social worker in Minneapolis who works from home part-time, had had difficulties focusing on work while caring for her seven-year-old son, Kobe, and four-year-old daughter, Noah. Noah? Noah? N-O-A, however you say that. It's a lot of multitasking and stopping in the middle of what I'm doing and trying to engage Noah in an activity she'll do for five minutes, she says. I feel like I work for five minutes at a time. She tried to have her parents and in-laws do FaceTime calls with the kids, but it didn't sustain their attention. They were running around the room, she says. Ms. Goldsman looked into apps that provide more interactive and came across Together, a subscription-based video calling app that contains children's books and such games as chess, connect four, shoots and ladders, so callers can play against each other. My four-year-old will play on it for an hour with my parents, which is really nice when I'm trying to get some work done, she says. Cheryl Galtzman, Ariel's 70-year-old mother-in-law in in Naples, Florida, looks forward to daily chess matches with Kobe and likes knowing she is helping out. I'm a filler in her in their time, she says. That's nice. Together was launched in February 2019 by Barcelona father Enrique Rodriguez so his daughter could connect with their grandparents who live in Mexico and Germany. He said the app grew slowly at first but has taken off since the pandemic separated families. Since uh, March, mid-March, he says the number of downloads has grown by 50 times. He declined to say how many times the app has been downloaded because he is seeking funding. I tried this app with my five-year-old who has been whining from boredom. My parents had tried reading to him over FaceTime, but it didn't engage him much. When they played games on together, though, it kept him busy for 45 minutes, which felt like a blissful eternity. I was able to process the groceries that had just arrived, but in a load of laundry and as well get some work done. The catch, the Together app, which works only which works only on Apple devices, gives you free time, uh, three free one hour calls. After that, it's six ninety nine a month. That's not bad. The Goldsman family and others I spoke to also have used Caribou, another video calling app with books and coloring activities. It, too, has reported a surge in downloads since the shutdown began. Caribou, which is currently offering free access because of the pandemic, normally charges $6.99 a month, and its users are now on more than 5 million minutes a week, up from 800,000 since March. Some grandparents are producing their own video content to keep the grandchildren engaged. Bridge Kuntz of New Jersey has been conducting cooking classes over FaceTime for her granddaughters, Ariel and Emery, age 12 and 10 in Phoenix. So far, the 64-year-old has taught them how to make gnocchi, 
eggplant parmesan and biscotti it's something we can actually plan on the calendar it's an educational experience for the kids and it helps mom with dinner said the girl's mother elena kuntz alexis friedman a learning and development contractor in northbrook illinois came to rely heavily on her mom when she was became ill with coronavirus coronavirus like symptoms last month Although Ms. Freeman tested negative for coronavirus-19, she had to isolate herself in her bedroom for seven days while her husband cared for their five-year-old and 16-month-old. Ms. Freeman's mother, Ray Luskin, 69, held virtual art classes and dance parties with the five-year-old over the Echo Show 5 device. When Ms. Luskin previously had done video calls with her granddaughter over Face messenger without an activity the little girl would just walk away i think having something that's planned and that she enjoys has helped with her attention span miss freeman said one thing that's been cool for me as a parent to see is that my mom and daughter have a special connection she opens up more to her grandmother than she does to me mara markson uh, a hospital social worker in Chicago was struggling to keep her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Shay, occupied when she works from home. She tried having her do virtual music and yoga classes, but Shay would just pull up a chair and watch. Zoom play dates with Miss Markin's mom, friends, and their kids were a disaster. It was like herding cats, she said. So she turned to the grandparents who read to Shay over Google Hangouts. She always wants to look at the pictures on the screen, so I have to read upside down, says Elena Markson, 71, of suburban Buffalo, New York. Sometimes she'll just jet off and want to play. The grandmother had better luck when she and Shay played Hide the Matzo, a pass, Passover book or Passover game. Shay received a book as a prize for finding the matzo. They played and read books online for nearly an hour. Elena Matson said the virtual time with granddaughter is no replacement for seeing her in person, but for now, it's the best she has. It's my fix, she says. So there you go. If you uh, have grandchildren out there and uh, you can do this, uh, there's two online things uh, right there. So moving on, that's some really nice tech stuff. And what else do we have on here? Uh, let's see. Oh, here's the next one. The best robot toys for building kids STEM skills. That's uh, science, um, technology. I can't remember. And the last one is medical. The these toy these robot toys and kits help teach children problem solving skills. Ones they'll need as they grow into adults in a world run by machines. Today's kids will think it's weird that robots were ever considered some space-age novelty. Children are already surrounded by voices, see Siri and Alexa that respond to their every whim, and pet-like uh, Roombas that relentlessly clean up after them. Why would they blink at a universe full of self-driving cars and AI augmented everything else? Nevertheless, there are still reasons to buy robot kits for these worldly kids. Building a friendly bot toy helps kids adapt even more readily to changing world and 
developed STEM skills in science, there we go, science, technology, engineering, and math. It also pushes them to think creatively and hone life skills. Coding by itself teaches you how to break the problem into steps and how to approach it math, uh, methodically, says uh, Visal Rainey, CEO and founder of Young Wonks, a coding school for children in Pleasanton, California. That kind of skill is going to help you in anything you do in life. You can see kids' excitement in their whole bodies and their eyes. Mr. Reina breaks a whole overwhelming number of robot toys on the market in three tiers. The first consists of off-the-shelf robots that vary widely in their educational value. Typically geared toward younger kids, they don't demand the children do much programming or commanding. Fisher-Price Think and Learn Code of Pillar Twist, $34, fisherprice.com. For instance, teaches kids ages three to six the very basics of sequencing. For preteens, ELNCO, E-L-E-N-C-O, apostrophe S, Teach Tech Mechanics 5, $36, ELNCO, E-L-E-N-C-O.com, and Make Blocks, apostrophe S, M-Bot Ranger Kit, $126, MakeBlock.com, Call for Critical Thinking Skills, but don't overwhelm build uh, budding block builders. The second tier includes store-bought kits that provide kids all the necessary components, but let the maker assemble them as he or she sees fit. Lego's Mindstorms EV3 kits offer detailed instructions for five core designs, but also equips young tinkerers with enough pieces and programming flexibility to set them free once they earn their engineering stripes. $345, lego.com. Vex Robotics is another player in this category with crafty kits ranging in grade levels, complexity and price for pre-kindergarten children through college-age engineering students. Vexrobotics.com. After learning to create and code their own bots from kits, experienced builders as young as eight... can set their sights on the third most advanced tier. Custom machines that are often crafted with pieces pilfered from kits or found at hobby stores. These homespun bots might not look pretty, but uh, by assembling the components From scratch, with the help of coding programs, builders learn along the way. Kids who jump at the chance to build and code robots offer inter-competition like RoboRave, a set of contests that call on students' teams to design robots that accomplish specific tasks like navigating a maze or extinguishing a fire. That's pretty cool. Competitions teach children collaboration and conflict resolution. On top of STEM skills, that said Marina Umbashi-Burrs, chair of the Department of Child Study and Human Development at Tufts University, who has developed her own robot toy system for kids called Kibo, argues that the value of building and coding bots 
comes from the creative process of itineration and that outcome-based activities like competitions can overlook that value. She divides the glut of robot toys into black and white categories. There are playpen robots that are fun, but teaches few skills and requires little input from the user, like the Wowie Myposaurs, the futuristic dinos that let kids play fetch. But she prefers playground robots that require creativity and enable collaboration, such as the RoboLink RoboKit Smart Starter, which helps kids grasp the Arduin programming language. I, I said that wrong. It's A-R-D-U-I-N-O, programming language, as they command their toys to navigate mazes. Uh, Brett Greenstein, Senior Vice President for AI and ana- Analytics at the tech firm Cognance similarly extols open-ended robot robo-engineering. The fact that you can copy instructions and make something work is really cool, but it's the extra, uh, extrapolation and the creativity that comes after that. Oh, if I can make it do this, how do I learn to make it do that? He and his three-year-old son have started building command-driven contraptions using the smart circuit games and gadget electronics lab, $50, mindware.com. He said he's already seen the wheels turning in his son's head. It's how often I felt when I saw those same things as a kid and how I got into technology. Whatever the end goal, the process of creating becomes the reward, says Mr. Reyna. When kids find a solution to something they have never worked on, the level of excitement that you can see in their whole body, in their eyes, their expression, it's an incredible feeling just to watch them, he said. That is the high you are going to give them. That high and the skill they develop will serve them throughout their strange futuristic lives. They'll know their capability of oncoming obstacles of all shapes and sizes, even if the robot will be on hand to do much of the work anyway. So there you go. Get your kids, your grandkids into robotics. It'll help them grow. This is all the time I have for this week of Wall Street Journal. I hope you enjoyed these uh, articles. Until next week, God bless you. God bless your week. And stay safe. This is Bill Feltham with the Wall Street Journal.